Amen. Well, good morning, uh, CBC. Grace and peace to you. Um, we are continuing this week and concluding uh, our series on the fear of God. Last week, uh, we attempted to distinguish between two types of fear. That's the right kind of fear and the wrong kind of fear. Now, the wrong kind of fear is being afraid of God. Think of Adam in the garden after he um, ate from the forbidden fruit. He said, I heard the sound of you and I was afraid, so I hid myself. The wrong kind of fear causes us to hide from God, to flee from His presence. However, the right kind of fear, it's not rooted in a fear of punishment, but in God's holiness, that is, an understanding of God's transcendence. In other words, you and I, we learn to fear God properly when we recognize that He is God and we are not. And this week, we are going to expand upon this right kind of fear. It's rooted, one, in God's holiness, as I just mentioned, but also in His goodness. So one aspect of fear is the recognition that God is a consuming fire. That God, uh, that the, rather the angels, the seraphim and the cherubim around His throne shield their eyes from His presence. That's one aspect of the fear of God. But the other aspect of fear is the recognition that this same God, the consuming fire, was born of the Virgin Mary, that He suffered under Pontius Pilate, that He was crucified, died, and was buried And that the third day he rose again from the dead. In other words, this second aspect of fear is awestruck wonder of what God has done for us in Christ and through the Spirit. Again, as our passage says, there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. So it's fear, but not terror or dread. It's the fear of love. It's what the psalmist asks in Psalm 8, What is man that thou art mindful of him? It's what the scripture proclaims, Come and see the works of God who is awesome in his deeds toward the sons of men. So hopefully by the time we work our way through Psalm 130, um, we'll all be able to say the same thing. Who am I, Lord, that you are mindful of me? So our passage as most of the Psalms are, is one, uh, is rather a prayer. The psalmist cries to God from the depths, and he asking to be heard. He says, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications, verse 2. And we know that from the rest of the psalm, that his trouble, the reason that he finds himself in the depths, is his own sin. He cries for forgiveness and redemption, not only for himself, but for the nation as well. And in verse 3, he raises a rhetorical question. He says, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And the answer to his rhetorical question is obviously no one. There is not one human alive or who has ever lived outside our Lord who can stand before 
the justice and righteousness of God. And this tells us two things. One, that we as human beings are accountable to divine justice. But it also tells us too that God does not exercise such justice against us as we deserve. Mark is the word that the psalmist uses to describe the kind of activity that God does not do. If you should mark iniquities. In the Hebrew, it's the word shamar, and it means to keep, or to watch, or to guard. In fact, it's used once more in our passage. In verse 6, the psalmist says, My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman, shamar, there's our word, for the morning. And so through his rhetorical question, the psalmist is telling us something about God. If you should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? He's telling us that God is not a watchman over our sins. He is not vigilant over them as a patrolman is over his post. Nor does he watch over them as a warden would do with his prisoners. Instead of passing through our lives with a fine-tooth comb to find any fault, he passes over our lives in mercy and grace. He does not mark, God does, or count our sins against us in that manner. But remember, it's not a statement that the psalmist gives us. It's a question. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities. Now, this is important because it implies that God has the right to mark our sins. But he refrains from it. In other words, the psalmist knows that God is not lax or permissive about sin. God is not a watchman over our sins, yes. But that does not mean that he's the quote-unquote affirming and tolerant Father in heaven, content to let us do whatever we please. And so in reading this psalm, we can run into two errors. We can go wrong in two ways. The first is that imagining that God does not mark sin because there's nothing to mark. And the second is that there is something to mark, but God is rather casual about enforcing it. So the first error is an understanding of God marked by the relativism of our day. In other words, good and evil, right and wrong, are social constructs. That is, they're the products of a particular time and place, a particular people and culture, and therefore, they're not universal. They might be applicable to one society in one time, in one place, but not to all of mankind spanning time. So there may be a God. Okay, There may be a God, but he's not much concerned with this right and wrong business. And therefore, it's up to us as responsible adults in an amoral world to figure things out for ourselves. we got to figure out what right and wrong is. That's just the way the world is. That's one mistake. The second error is an understanding of God that's not relativistic, meaning there is no standard, but permissive. There is a universal moral law according to this understanding, but God is rather laid back about enforcing it. His real concern is that we live happy lives and that we feel good about ourselves. 
And as he makes our dreams come true, we should remember just to be a good person and to give back to those around us. And in the end, both of those errors let us off the hook. Both of those errors are not what this psalm is saying. One reasons away the universal moral law, and the other is a species of cheap grace. In these understandings, there's nothing to fear or even respect about this God. He's neither judge nor is he savior, but he's a projection of our times. A God who does not command obedience. A God who does not threaten judgment. A God who does not even promise glory, but exists solely to confirm us in our own paths and aspirations. And against these tendencies, we must maintain that through Jesus, God will judge the world in righteousness. Romans 14, the Apostle Paul says, We will all stand before the judgment. Each of us will give an account of himself to God. So God is not a watchman over our sin, but neither is he slack about upholding righteousness on the earth. We do not want to turn the greatness of his mercy and grace into an occasion for more sin. And we need to maintain this truth, the sometimes rather uncomfortable truth of God's judgment, because once we slip from these errors, or we slip into these errors, and we begin to take them on, we are a few short steps from not needing God at all in our lives. Reinhold Niebuhr, he's a 20th century theologian, he describes um, the, this message, right? what happens when we take this on, he described it this way. He says, A God without wrath brought men into, uh, without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of Christ without a cross. So our message, the good news that's been entrusted to us, loses its distinction and becomes merely a spiritual version of whatever the culture has on offer. We become a chaplain to the spirit of the age. And the gospel loses its authority to call for repentance. And it loses its power for change. And ultimately, God becomes simply unnecessary. We don't need him when we remove the fear of God. Another uh, 20th century, uh, this, this time a philosopher, his name's Richard Rorty. You might have heard of that name. Um, he explains the logic. He says, forgive the small type there. He says, if I were a fundamentalist Christian, I'd be appalled at the wishy-washiness of the liberal version of, of the Christian faith. But since I am a non-believer who is frightened by the barbarity of many fundamentalist Christians, for example, their homophobia, I welcome theological liberalism. Maybe liberal theologians will eventually produce a version of Christianity so wishy-washy that nobody will be interested in being a Christian anymore. If so, something will have been lost, but probably more will have been gained. So Rory, as an unbeliever, welcomes theological liberalism. It becomes so wishy-washy, uh, uh, so, so just, you know, God's there to bless you and support your causes, 
that we don't need God anymore, and eventually it disappears. So Rorty describes, essentially, a vision of the Christian faith without the fear of God. So in contrast to those two things we just mentioned, the psalmist has an entirely different understanding of God. He is sure that God is judge. He is sure that God does have the right to mark our sins against us and to hold us accountable to them. But he is also sure that God refrains from that in his gentleness to us. God's meticulous and unremitting justice would wash every last one of us away, consigning us to the outer darkness. But the psalmist tells us God is not a watchman over our iniquities. He's not a fault finder. He's not looking for a reason to condemn us, in other words. And so while some are ensnared by dreams of a morally lax and therapeutic God, Others are captured by just the opposite. A God of unrelenting justice who marks every sin with an iron pen on a tablet of stone. And while these other conceptions of God lack any notion of justice, justice is all this conception has. God is the watchman. He's the cosmic big brother. He's the universal surveillance state waiting for us to get crosswise with his purposes. He's not a God to be feared in the good sense, but a God who inspires panic and anxiety in our hearts. He sets us upon the precipice, the razor's edge, and then he demands perfection, waiting for you to fall to the left or to the right. And though one might serve this God, it's to save their own skin. It's to avoid judgment. It's to avoid death and damnation. They don't serve him because there's anything worth serving in him. They serve him to save themselves. And so while these other conceptions of God make him unnecessary, we just don't need him anymore, this conception makes him repulsive. Both spiritually and psychologically, it's impossible to live under this understanding of God. It's a life of guilt that turns into self-hatred. Then that turns into fear and then hopelessness. And I'm a self-professed theology nerd, but this is why. So when I got saved slowly for whatever reason, my, my understanding of God went to this. I thought at every moment God was ready to just toss me into hell. And it was finally going to the scriptures, going to good theology that helped me find the true God. A true understanding of God inspires hope. The psalmist says in verse 5, I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait, and in his word do I hope. He's so confident that God will forgive, that God will be gracious to him, that he can hope, that he has a future with this God. But the understanding of God that we've been talking about, the watchman of God, he, this one crushes hope. One cannot say, as the psalmist does in verse 7, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption. Instead, one lives under the perpetual fear of punishment. 
And it's precisely this fear, a fear that many Christians struggle under, the fear of punishment that God has rescued us from in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In his death and resurrection, he has revealed himself not to be a watchman God, not the slave master or the terrorizer of our consciences, but our advocate. 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. The perfect love that God has revealed to us in the gospel casts out this kind of fear. The Father did not send us an accuser or a watchman to punish, but a friend and a brother to redeem. We're like the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. She was caught in the very act by the Pharisees, and she was brought into the public square where everyone was as a pawn to trap Jesus. The gambit of the Pharisees was, will he uphold the law and condemn her to death by stoning, or will he advocate for her and contradict the law? They think they've got Jesus. I think they can finally find reason and ground for accusing him. And the scripture says, John chapter 8, verses 7 through 11, when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone. And the woman, where she was, in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go, from now on, sin no more. The good news, why Jesus was sent to us, it speaks the same word to our hearts. I do not condemn you either. Go, and from now on, sin no more. And since it, instead of fear or punishment, the psalmist comes before God in humility and faith. He approaches God in humility, knowing his sin, that it deserves to be counted against him, that he deserves whatever is coming to him. And yet he comes also in faith, knowing that God is good and that God is ready to forgive him despite that. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. And so such is how we need to approach God, not in presumption, acting as if our sins do not matter, or as if God is not that unconcerned with him and he'll just forgive them. But we're also not to come in fear, imagining that judgment is the only thing that we can expect from God. Instead, we come in humility, knowing who we are, but also in faith, knowing who God is. We take our sins seriously. We must. But we must also take God's grace even more seriously. 
So God has the right and the prerogative to mark our iniquities against us, but he doesn't. Rather than exercising strict justice against us, he moves toward us in forgiveness. He is, Psalm 145, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. Indeed, our Lord teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount that we are to love our enemies, that we are to do them good and expect nothing in return. And why? Jesus says, because God is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Luke chapter 6, verse 35. As the psalmist proclaims in Psalm 103, He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. God does not act according to us, according to what our sins deserve. Instead, he acts according to his own mercy and wisdom. He forgives the unrighteous. He justifies the ungodly. He pardons the transgressor. The prophet Micah stands in awe. Who is a God like you? Who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. It is because God's self-consistency, that is, His unchanging love, that we are not consumed. Hence, our passage, there is forgiveness with you, that you may be feared. Here is a fear not rooted in punishment. Here is a fear not rooted in the watchmen of our imaginations, but in a goodness beyond our wildest dreams. It's not the fear that leads again to slavery, the Apostle Paul would say, but it's the fear that leads to freedom. We've been given the spirit of adoption. And when one understands, that is, comprehends in their hearts, the loving kindness of God, it leads not to, or it leads not to presumption, but to fear. God has the right to exercise judgment against me. And all my sin against him, and all my sin against my fellow human beings. But he doesn't. Instead, where I come expecting judgment, he forgives and he renews. And my heart trembles. It tastes of his infinite grace and kindness and knows its complete unworthiness. And it fears. My heart no longer wants to continue in sin. No longer wants to spurn the riches of God's mercy, but to please Him and to honor His name. Remember the prostitute in Luke chapter 7. Jesus is invited to a dinner party by Simon the Pharisee. And as Jesus enters, He's treated with suspicion and He's treated with a lack of hospitality. When suddenly, into the midst of this nice dinner, barges in the prostitute uninvited. She falls down at Jesus' feet, weeping, wiping her tears from his feet with her hair. And Simon the Pharisee, watching on, says to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of person this woman was, that she is a sinner. Implying that if Jesus 
really was from God, he wouldn't be allowing this. He wouldn't be associating with such kind of people. And I'll read from this at length. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. And Jesus responded, a moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, has, but she since the time she came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. This is the fear of love, that loves and is forgiven, that is forgiven and loves. And that's the irony. We suppose sometimes, maybe oftentimes, that we need to emphasize the strictness of God's justice to keep people in line be it our church or our children or our culture, but we are quite wrong. And while it might keep people in line, it's for the wrong reasons. One serves God as their boss in loveless obedience, not for his sake, because they love him, but theirs, because they don't want to be punished. To preach the mercy and grace of God revealed to us in Jesus Christ will always seem like moral indifference to some. It will always seem like a dangerous license to sin. Doesn't Paul say at the end or at the beginning of Romans chapter 6, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He preaches the gospel and he says, this is the people's logical conclusion. Well, I should just keep sinning. But he says, God forbid, may it never be. And listen, for many, it will be just that. They will hear the message of grace. They will hear the message of God's forgiveness and they'll see it as a blank check. But for those who have ears to hear, it will be life to the soul and health to the bones. The gospel message is the only message that can transform the heart and truly teach one to fear. And the product of fear is obedience. When one recognizes that there is forgiveness with you, a love arises within the heart rather than a law being imposed upon it from the outside. In each of our lives, the path to obedience is never mere moral effort. Now, we need to work hard, and we need to give everything we have, but it can never be just that alone. We've got to return to the gospel, remembering what God has done for us in Christ. He who is forgiven little, loves little. And he who is forgiven much, loves much. So now bringing um, the message to Something of a close. One of the most terrible human experiences um, is despair. Uh, We've talked a little bit about this. That's the feeling of being beyond hope. And what puts us in that situation more than anything else is our own sin. We are confronted by what we have done 
And at the end of the road that we cannot escape lies what it deserves, retribution. In other words, our future is determined by our sinful past. It seems that there's no escaping what we've done, no hope for a new beginning, no shot at redemption, only a reckoning. And it leads to despair, and it leads to hopelessness in a person's life. Now, we don't have a lot of information about this psalm, but that seems to be the situation. As a nation, Israel had gotten itself into a position seemingly beyond hope. Their iniquities had set the course, and they were only getting what they had coming to them. Thus, despair settled in. That gut-churning feeling as the brightness is drained from the future. And it seems the psalmist is speaking into such a situation, one that is beyond hope. Because he, sa- he, his, he says in verse uh, 7 and 8, O Israel, hope in the Lord, as if they weren't. For with the Lord there is loving kindness, he reminds them, and with him is abundant redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So the psalmist, he doesn't soothe their hearts by downplaying the severity of their situation. They have blown it. Their iniquities have wound them up in this situation. Instead, he reminds them of their God who they have seemingly forgotten. He says, because there's forgiveness with God, the nation has hope. Despite all their iniquities and what those iniquities deserve, they are not beyond redemption. And at the center of his exhortation is the loving kindness of God. Scholars tell us that that word, loving kindness, is a a word that's hard to capture in English. Hence our many translations. It's translated simply as mercy or kindness or goodness or faithfulness. But the more modern translations, working off some modern scholarship, are closer to the mark. They translate it as steadfast or loyal or unfailing love. The loving kindness of God is his loyal and unfailing love toward his people. It's that quality about God that outlasts our iniquities that outlasts our ability to destroy things. It's that quality about God that stands on the far side of the wreckage that we've made, ready to redeem and renew things. It is His loyalty to us, to His promises, and to His own unchanging nature. And therefore, the psalmist can say, with the Lord, there is abundant redemption even in the midst of this situation, even in the midst of your situation, with the Lord there is abundant redemption. Thus in our lives there is no situation or circumstance beyond the hope of God's loving kindness, past the reach of His unfailing love. We always, even when we've walked down a road that we have justly deserved, we always have hope that it's never the dead end. Consider the gospel, the victory of Jesus Christ. Redemption and a new beginning for the world is born from the finality of death. That ultimate dead end is overcome in the resurrection of Jesus. 
And the one who raised him from the dead is more than capable of dealing with our lesser troubles. Thus, as the psalmist encourages us, we wait for God more than the watchman does for the sunrise. We expect, not because of us, but because of him, his goodness to shine upon us in the darkness of our lives, in the bed that we've made for ourselves. So do not despair. There is forgiveness with God. And because there is forgiveness, there is always the opportunity for a new beginning. Always the opportunity for abundant redemption. It may seem dark and bleak and at the end of the road, but it never is because of God. And so now as we... uh, we wrap up, we want to turn our hearts from the audible word of the gospel heard in these scriptures to the physical word of the gospel, and that is Holy Communion. Jesus' death and resurrection, what we remember and celebrate now, is a once-for-all act of forgiveness and a once-for-all new beginning. In his death, on the cross, All our iniquities are marked and judged. The dead end that we deserve is itself condemned. And in his resurrection, a new beginning is granted to us. A new beginning is granted to the entire universe. We have the promise of resurrection, the promise of a new heaven and a new earth, the kingdom of God that awaits us. So as we partake this morning... I just want to invite you to do that with awesome fear. As the psalmist says, come and see the works of God who is awesome in his deeds toward the sons of men. There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. So the body and blood of our Lord Jesus given for us and for our salvation. Um, I'd ask you now to come up to receive the elements of communion, to take them back to your places. And I will lead us um, in celebration in just one moment.